The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. For I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth. In thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this privilege and opportunity to study your word, that your word addresses every issue in life. It is not simply something that talks about a spirituality in some sort of abstract um, manner that is divorced from other issues and other areas of life. Neither is it a book that simply talks about our relationship with you and your existence and as if it is somehow divorced from all the other arenas of life. So now, fathers, we study this most uh, interesting passage in Judges, that we pray that you would help us to understand these things and that the principles that underlie it will be clear to us, that we may apply them in our own lives and our own thinking as we evaluate the culture around us. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Judges 19. Judges 19, and here we begin the last episode in the book of Judges. Judges 19, 20, and 21 are one interrelated section. There are 103 verses in this section, and the only, the only uh, narrative event that takes up more space in the book of Judges is that of the Gideon story, including, uh, of course, including that of his, um, of his son Abimelech. So, uh, that's, uh, other than that, this is the longest single episode, and that ought to cause us to give it a little tension. One of the things that, as I emphasized in our my teaching this last week on Bible study methods, a couple of things that we have to pay attention to whenever we get into the Scripture is um, one thing is proportion, and especially when you're studying narrative literature, which any kind of historical literature much of the Old Testament, 
some of the New Testament, for example, the Gospels and the Acts are, are primarily narrative. But whenever you're studying narrative literature, we need to pay attention to almost the speed or the rhythm of the, of the events because sometimes all of a sudden things really slow down. And when things slow down and the Holy Spirit starts paying attention to what seem to be normal details in normal everyday life, uh, we need to stop and pay attention to that. And it's real easy because it's so normal and it's just a as we'll see in this chapter, just sort of the mundane events of life that one would normally expect to transpire, uh, we tend to blow through it pretty quick, thinking, well, let's get to the real issues here. And yet that's there for a reason. A second thing we need to notice is proportion. And that is that when the, when the Holy Spirit, through the, uh, or the human writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tends to emphasize something so much or, or repeat it or... It seems disproportionate to what's around it, then the Holy Spirit really is emphasizing it. They don't have, like, like today, uh, we have bold face and italic and underline and, and uh, different ways in which we can format a written document to bring attention to it. Well, they didn't have that in the ancient world, so they would do it through uh, rhetorical style, and they would do it sometimes through grammar, and it was through those means that they would uh, bring emphasis to a particular section. Just as a note, one of the things I've noticed in, uh, in a lot of print literature since the advent of the uh, computer, since the late 80s, is that people go absolutely nuts when they're writing some things and they bold every other word or they italicize every fourth sentence or something like that. And anything like that needs to be used sparingly. Because if you bold everything, then everything becomes important and it loses its significance or, or things like that. So you use things like that in an extremely sparing manner. Same thing with quotation marks. I've noticed sometimes people tend to use quotation marks for phrases and everything. In most style books, you use things like that in an extremely sparing manner because if you use them frequently, they lose their impact. Uh, same thing happens in Scripture, and the Scripture, of course, is excellent literature. So we see how the Holy Spirit tends to, to emphasize tends to emphasize certain things. And then a third thing that we should note whenever we read Scripture, and it's especially true in this particular passage. I don't know how many times I've, I've read through this passage or taught this passage, and, and every time I hit it, it's, it's like, why in the world is this here? This is just such a bizarre episode. It's just so... So horrendous. I mean, this, this describes one of the most violent, one of the most vicious, one of the most degrading episodes in all of the scriptures. Just at, at, at times, it just borders on the disgusting. And we ought to pay attention to that when we read through something and we have that sort of visceral response to what is going on in the text, that that's there for a reason. The Holy Spirit, once again, is drawing our attention to this. And he, he, he is, the, the scriptures are so, uh, or the Holy Spirit is so uh, efficient in the way he uses vocabulary and the way they, he describes events that when we see things like this, they're not there simply because it's part of the story. The Holy Spirit doesn't operate like that. Scriptures don't just include details just because it happens to be there, but it's part of what is being emphasized. So when we come to this section, we realize that the writer of Judges is making a, a dramatic point for us. At the end of this entire book that is emphasizing the principle of the, of the destruction, uh, the internal destruction of the nation Israel because they have rejected God as their absolute point of reference. There was no king in the land, means they have rejected God as the ultimate authority, but everyone does. 
what's right in their own eyes. And that's the theme. And here we're going to see how that's played out. And what happens is that we've emphasized again and again and again, the writer points out that the first thing that starts in Israel is they do evil in the eyes of the Lord and they reject him and they turn to the, idol, to the idols of the fertility religions. They, they turn to the Baalim and the Asherot. Now, the principle, is, as we come to the end of Judges, this principle is laid out in these two episodes that are tacked on at the end. Now, they're not tacked on as if they're irrelevant. They are there significantly at the end because the, from chapter 3-5 through the end of chapter 16 with the Samson episode, the writer of Judges is emphasizing the uh, decline of the leadership, that just as a, the, the spiritual apostasy of the people affects the, the nation as a whole, it affects the leadership. The leadership come out from the, from the mass of the people, and they gradually mirror the pagan environment around them until we get to the looking at Samson, and Samson's no different from any other pagan leader. He, even though God is empowering him and God is using him, his life, his morals, his, his ethics, his behavior is no different from, from any, any of the pagans around him. And then there's a shift. In 17 and 18, there's one episode. And in 19 through 21, there's another episode. The, the section in 17 and 18, which we just finished, focuses on the spiritual apostasy of the nation. It started with one man. It starts with him developing his own religious system and his own way of looking at the worship of Yahweh, very similar to the way many people are today. They talk a lot about God, and they use all kinds of religious verbiage and Christian terminology, but they're, they're, there's no biblical accuracy to their, to their approach to Christianity. And the order of these events is important because 17 and 18 reveals the spiritual apostasy and 19 through 21 shows the social degradation that occurs as a result of the spiritual apostasy. That's the reason they're in that order. And in the book of Judges, the spiritual apostasy is always the core problem. And then all of the other uh, problems that are going on in, in the culture, the, the military defeat, economic problems of famine and depression, recession, all of the economic problems, problems of the degradation of women, problems of, um, of the, the, the revolts that occurred within, at different times within different segments of society, the fragmentation of the tribes, all of those are secondary in nature. They are all the consequences of a spiritual reversionism at the core of the nation. As the nation goes apostate, these other things happen. And the same thing happens, the same dynamic occurs in a person's life. You see, as a person goes through life, sometimes you see, you see believers get reach a point where they're sort of relaxed about life. Well, everything seems to be going pretty good, and then they start failing the test of prosperity. And Bible doctrine becomes less and less important in their lives, and they, they end up replacing doctrine as the ultimate priority in their life with something else, and that's idolatry. And once that occurs in a person's life, then they'll start making a, a number of decisions that are bad decisions. Now, they are not overtly bad. It's not like all of a sudden they become a mass murderer or they become a rapist or, or something like that. But they start making foolish decisions just based on priorities. And over a period of time, there is a cumulative effect and a cumulative consequence from those bad decisions. 
And then all of a sudden they wake up one day and it seems like their life is an absolute wreck. All kinds of negative things are happening. Maybe they're having problems with finances. They're, all of a sudden they're, they're uh, unemployed. And there doesn't seem to be any direct connection between any sin and all of this fragmentation that's going on in their life. They're having financial problems, job problems, marriage problems, problems with their kids, whatever it may be. All of a sudden everything in life seems to be falling apart. And the result, and those are, are, are simply the symptoms that are the consequence of a spiritual problem. And once that person gets back with the Lord and puts doctrine first, then these things clear up. But we tend to want to look for things that have a direct cause and effect link. But there's not always that direct, overt cause and effect link. Because it's the, the, when things finally fall apart, and it may take some time before that occurs, but when things finally fall apart, we can't necessarily point to one bad decision or one, one event that brought everything about. It, it, it's, it's cumulative. So we see the same thing in the nation of Israel, that as they have made a number of bad decisions, all of a sudden they look around and there is this internal fragmentation in the nation, which is demonstrated in the events of this particular uh, episode starting in Judges 19. Now, this episode highlights this perversion that has fragmented the internal cohesion of the 12 tribes and how fragmented they also, uh, and how fragmented they have become. We see a, a tremendous web of problems that have developed in the social structure of the nation. There's the, the increase of sexual perversion. Now, violence towards women. Women are treated as, in this episode as nothing more than mere objects on the periphery of the male agenda. There is sexual abuse. And then we see the abdication by the male of any real care or concern for any other people, especially for women. There is a rise and increase of criminality and violence while there is little concern for the victim and more concern for vindicating someone's own personal agenda. Does this sound familiar? Sounds like a commentary on what's taking place in America today. Well, it's just a, a brief snapshot of an event that occurred in Israel that's not uncommon today. So this section emphasizes the degradation that has occurred inside the nation itself. Now, when we get into Judges 19, I've got to warn you, this is a long section. As I stated earlier, it's 103 verses from chapter 19 through chapter 21. And there's no way I can do justice to this section. It ought to be treated as a whole, but there's no way I can do justice to this section by covering it in just one session. Uh, there's too many details here that need to be explained and, and the dynamics that need to be explicated. So uh, it, we're, we're going to take a, a little time to go through it. First of all, let's cover about five opening principles, five opening principles to remember as we go through this section. First of all, as goes the believer, so goes the nation. That's the overall principle. We see it both in Judges 18 because it's very possible that, that even there Micah or the Levite were, were believers, but they are apostate. And it's possible here we have a Levite, and there's no reason to indicate, and there's nothing stated in the text to indicate that this Levite in Judges 19 is apostate, in a sense, or that he is uh, not a believer. In fact, 
as we open up the section, everything we read about the Levite seems to be, be pretty positive. But he doesn't act very differently from anybody else in the, the pagan culture around him. And so we see how the spiritual apostasy of the nation uh, has destroyed them. We see that another principle that's going to be outlined in this, which is not the second principle, but just one to remember, and that is that in reversionism, uh, believers' lives often seem to be as bad, if not worse, than unbelievers. When a believer goes into apostasy, their life many times will be as bad, if not worse, than unbelievers. Our first principle, as goes the believer, so goes the nation. And these believers are in apostasy, so the nation is in apostasy. Second principle, the assault on sexuality. There is an assault on sexuality in this chapter that is that it's absolutely revolting with, with the uh, uh, perversion of sodomy, of, sodom, uh, of sodomy in this chapter. And it is an assault on divine institution number two, marriage, and an assault on divine institution number three, the family. And that is the ultimate problem with sexual sin, is that it assaults marriage and it assaults the family, and that, if left unchecked, ends up fragmenting and destroying a nation. Once your divine institution of the family of marriage and the family break down, then a nation is on the verge of self-destruction. Third thing we're going to note in this chapter, in this section, is that a state of antagonism exists between the sexes as a result of the Adamic curse. A state of antagonism exists between the sexes as a result of the Adamic curse. We go back, we're not going to take the time to do it this morning, we have done it on other occasions, but in Genesis chapter 3... In verse 16, well, I'm going to turn there because I want, to, I want to read this to you just to remind you of this section. We have the outline of the curse on the man and the woman in terms of their relationship. One thing to note is that it's in the context of narrative literature, but it's in poetic form, which means that it is dramatic and the writer wants us to um, pay attention to it. And in verse 16, God addresses the woman. Now, he's outlined, the curse is an outline of the consequences sin is going to have in different spheres of life in, in uh, human history. These are general trends. These are not specific trends, so that not every uh, woman is going to demonstrate this in the same degree, some more so, some less so, depending on the trends of their sin nature. But this is a general statement. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. So it is uh, the second line of the, of the, uh, the, the, the two lines there the, of, the, of, the, of the poetry. The second line expands the meaning of the first line. We'll see that occurs in the second section of this verse. He addresses the woman and says, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, that introduces the war of the sexes that goes on through human history. Your desire is the Hebrew word teshuka. It does not refer to a, a sexual desire. It does not refer to an emotional longing. It refers to a desire to control, a desire to dominate, a desire to usurp authority. It's used 
in chapter 4 by the Lord when he addresses Cain and he says uh, that and warns him as he is being tempted in verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. The New King James Version translates a desire there, and it's the same word, and it's a picture of, uh, it uses the picture, the, the, paints the picture of, a, of, a, of, a, of an animal who is crouching at the door seeking to devour someone, seeking to dominate and control. And so the female is pictured here as having the, one of the trends as a result of the sin nature is to control the man in the marriage relationship and in society. The, on the other hand, the man is going to want to dominate the woman. And so there is this authority struggle in male-female relationships that is going to continue down through history. And what we conclude from that is that the more a culture rejects establishment principles and the, the biblical doctrines related to male-female relationships, the more that antagonism is going to be uh, emphasized and exacerbated. So that, and this is our fourth principle, in a pagan culture, one sex or the other is going to dominate and attempt to dominate. And so let's look at this and analyze this from a biblical viewpoint. You Remember, there are only two ways of looking at life. There's the human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. Human viewpoint is called in the Scriptures worldliness. It is identified with cosmic thinking, worldly thinking, and is the thinking of demons. It's part of the doctrines of demons because it's ultimately based on arrogance and antagonism to the truth. Now, human viewpoint thinking in terms of male-female relationships always moves towards one of two extremes. Despite all of the rhetoric of the feminist crowd of egalitarianism, seeking equality, notice it never moves to just equality. It always moves towards either some sort of, of uh, human, I'm going to call this human viewpoint patriarchy. There's a difference between human viewpoint patriarchy and divine viewpoint patriarchy. And, and that word is always used in sociology today and all the feminists want to say, oh, you're just a Western European male patriarchist and blah, 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 and that's why you're so evil. And then they just dismiss you with that. They don't understand there is a distinction between human viewpoint patriarchy and divine viewpoint patriarchy. So in human viewpoint, you either move towards, you move towards one of two extremes, human viewpoint patriarchy or human viewpoint matriarchy. Now, in human viewpoint patriarchy, the, the male ends up defining everything and is basically insensitive and non-compassionate towards the female. He uses his leadership as an excuse to dominate and control. The same thing will happen in a matriarchy. And incidentally, there has never been a successful matriarchy in human history. So both tend to fall apart, but they are the result of sin nature dominance in a culture. And so a culture is going to always move towards one or the other. In divine viewpoint, you have the emphasis on role distinction. 
and the male is the leader, and the female, the woman, is the helper, the assistant. Now, what's happened in the war of words in feminism is that being a helper, a sister, or being a, sub- a subordinate is viewed as something that is insignificant. And yet God is called out, uses the same word that's used in Genesis 2 I mean, to describe the role of the female to the male. When God created the woman in the garden, she was to be an aetzer to God, an aetzer, which means a helper or an assistant. And that same word is used many times of God. God is our helper. God is our aetzer. And so to say that to be an aetzer is somehow uh, derogatory, somehow uh, diminishes the role of the woman, somehow demeans her, is to make a theological statement against God that is pure blasphemy. You see what I'm saying? At the core of this entire uh, feminist debate is nothing but pure blasphemy. It is an assault on the person of God and the roles in the Trinity. Because in the, in the Trinity, there are also role distinctions. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, in terms of the Trinity, there is pure equality of person. The, the Father and the Son are equal in every category of attribute. The Father does not know more nor less than the Son. The Son does not know more nor less than the, the Father. The Son cannot do more or less than the Father. And the Father cannot do more or less than the Son. And the same is true of the Holy Spirit. They are completely equal in person. But they are distinct in role, and there is an authority structure within the Trinity. So authority in itself is not evil. It is necessary for the function, wherever there's more than one person involved, there needs to be role distinction and an authority relationship. Now, one thing that always happens in any situation, once you get to a point, whether it's in business, whether it's in school, whenever a teacher has to start emphasizing their authority in the classroom, you know one thing is true. They've already lost their authority. They're in trouble. And um, the Bible presents a radical view of authority and leadership. Jesus modeled it. It was a leadership based on love, true biblical, objective, mental attitude, love for the object, and it was based on being a servant, being there to serve the other one. That's why it is only on the basis of doctrine that the Christian marriage can overcome the curse of Genesis chapter 3. And in Ephesians chapter 5, you see that model of leadership. It starts off that we are to be subordinate one to another. And then it's then that's the overall principle. And then it outlines that that does not mean that it, it diminishes the role distinctions. And the husband is to love the wife as Christ loved the church. And that was a love that, w- that where... Uh, the Lord served the church, did that which was right and best for the church, and uh, sacrificed himself for the church. So it is a distinct kind of love. It is not a self-serving kind of love, a kind of love that is uh, a love that dominates and uh, diminishes the significance of the other one. So it's only through regeneration and through doctrine that you can have a real... Uh, Solution to the problem of the war of the sexes. And if there's no doctrine and it moves in the other direction, then you see this kind of complete breakdown that's going to be demonstrated in this chapter. 
So our first point was, as goes the believer, so goes the nation. Second point, the assault on sexuality is an assault on divine institution two and three. And third, a state of antagonism exists between the sexes as a result of the curse. Fourth, in pagan culture, one sex or the other dominates. And then fifth, the only solution is a divine viewpoint recognition of the roles of male and female, their equality as image bearers, but their distinction of role. Now, as we begin to get into our text here in Judges chapter 19, one thing that hits us right away is that nobody in this section is named. The only person named is Phinehas, the high priest, towards the end of chapter 20. But everyone else is left unnamed. So that is also significant. The anonymity of the characters does not mean that they are not real. In a parable, of course, the individuals are not named, but they're not real. It's just like a fable. It's a made-up story. But in a situation like this, where you have a tremendous amount of, of detail and accuracy, the anonymity of the characters does not indicate that they're not real or it's less historical, but that the author is making a point. Their anonymity emphasizes that they represent anyone in the nation. Their an- anonymity indicates that what is it declared in the purpose statement of the book, and that is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That means that the Levite represents any Levite. The concubine represents every woman. This could be true of any woman or every woman in the land. The father-in-law, who is a a very gracious host, um, represents every host in the land. There's an emphasis on hospitality and the doctrine of hospitality in this section and the lack of it in a pagan society. So he represents the hospitable side. The old man residing in, in, um, uh, in the city also in, in Gileadite also uh, represents every sort of outsider in a Benjamite town. And because everyone did as he saw fit, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, every host was capable of committing the same atrocities that occurred among the Benjamites. Every guest could be mistreated. Every woman was a potential victim of rape, murder, and dismemberment. And it's sort of ironic that just as the Levite would dismember his concubine, that could happen to anyone. It's a picture of the dismemberment of the nation because of the paganism that dominates. So the anonymity of the figures emphasize that this could happen to anyone. And this has become a standard uh, environment for the nation Israel. Second thing about the anonymity of the characters is it reflects the dehumanization of the individual in a paganized world. When a world is dominated by pagan thought, individuals as individuals rarely matter. There may be a lot of talk about individual rights, but it seems rather ironic that over the last 30 years, when there's more and more talk about individual rights, that people are treated more and more by the government as insignificant cogs in the overall machine. See, that's the consequence of paganism, is because only Christianity provides a, 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 a 
intellectual base for saying that people as individuals matter. It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter how old they are. It doesn't matter how handicapped they might be. Individuals as individuals are created in the image and likeness of God, and therefore every person has value and significance because they are image bearers of God. But in paganism, that's rejected. We're just the result of of chance plus chaos in, uh, in the universe, chance and time. And so people are no longer uh, significant as individuals. And that's what happens in this, in this section. To, to have a name means that you are somebody. You have identity and there's something distinct about you. Uh, even uh, We find out at the end of chapter 18 that even that, that Levitical priest that Micah hired has a name. He's Jonathan, the grandson of of Moses. Uh, so even he has a name, but here no one has a name because they're not being treated as individuals and as significant. So there's anonymity here throughout this, this section to uh, indicate two things, that it could happen to anyone and that the individuals have less, less value. Now, another thing that, that we should note as we go through this is that God doesn't enter the picture in this chapter at all. In fact, he's, he's rarely mentioned except for a few times in chapter 20. The Israel, Israel the, the, the tribes gather before the Lord at Mizpah. They're called the people of God. They consult him at Bethel, and then they weep before him again at Bethel. Uh, they, they freely use his name in the 21st chapter. But other than that, the decisions that they are making are their own decisions. They're doing what's right in their own eyes, and they, God just seems to be there as some sort of verbal uh, good housekeeping seal of approval. And as long as we use God's name and we wave the Bible, that somehow it gives validation to our actions. But their actions are the actions of people operating on pure relativism. Now, a third thing we need to note as we begin to... Uh, get into this episode in Judges 19 is that it is deeply reminiscent of events that happened in Genesis chapter 19. One of the things we should always do whenever we read the Bible, first and foremost, is to read the Bible as if it was written to you. Read it as if you are the original recipient. And Judges is written for the nation Israel to Jews as a warning of the dangers of apostasy and idolatry. Obviously, they did not heed the warning. They rejected the message of Judges because later on, during the period of the monarchy, both in the northern and southern kingdom, they went into idolatrous reversionism and completely ignored the message of Judges. But when this is written, it's written to Jews. It's written to Jews who have knowledge of the events in the Pentateuch. They have knowledge of Genesis chapter 19. And as you get into... uh, Judges 19, there is a tremendous similarity, an on, on almost overwhelming similarity. It's not, it's not just coincidence, but there is a tremendous similarity between this episode and what happened in Sodom. Now, Sodom was one of the five cities of the plains that existed down by the, the Dead Sea. And back in Genesis 19, you have the episode where God was coming to judge the five cities of the plain because of their perversion, because of their sexual perversion and their sexual deviancy. And so he is going to judge them and destroy the five cities of the plain. And he comes with two angels to 
to Abram and has dinner with Abram. And Abram says, well, you're going to judge the nation. Well, would you, would you let it survive if there were ten righteous men there? And the Lord said, yes. Well, five righteous men. He goes through that whole procedure. And the point is that Abram is saying Lot and his family are there, so please deliver them. And so the Lord sends the two angels there, and they come to the city of Sodom, and the similarities begin there. What we find in both episodes is that a small group of travelers arrives in a city in the evening. It's almost too late to find a place to stay, and so they're just going to be uh, at, the, uh, at the mercy of the people in the town to be hospitable to them. And then a person who himself is not a local to the town, is not one of the local people, observes the presence of these travelers and, um, and invites them into the house. But the travelers have, a, or have an intention. They're, they intend to spend the night in the open square. And the, the host, the person who is not the local, uh, the, the, the local native, insists that they are not to spend the night in the, in the square. And there's this sense, there's this overtone that something, something horrible could happen. So they're, they're not to spend the night out in the open, but they are to come inside the house where there would be protection. The host follows all the various procedures of hospitality and uh, taking care of the guests and, and feeding them. And then as darkness comes, and it is under the cover of darkness that, that sin usually manifests itself, the uh, sexual deviance of the city, the male uh, perverts of the city surround the house and begin to bang on the door demanding that the host deliver the male guests so that they can commit a gang rape on the, on the uh, visitor out in the public square. The host then protests this display of wickedness, which then pr- proves to be futile, and the host then offers a substitute female to satisfy the uh, deviant lusts of the men. And the uh, similarity of vocabulary between the two chapters is, is there's, there's about uh, 16 words or phrases that are common. It is clear that the writer of Judges wants the Jewish reader to think about the sexual deviancy of Sodom, which, is, which becomes the... The, 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 the poster child, as it, is, as it were, of, of the degradation of the human race. It can't get any worse than Sodom. Sodom was so bad that God had to personally wipe them off the face of the earth, and they became a proverb and a byword throughout the ancient world. And what the writer wants us and the Jewish reader to recognize is that in this event, things are just as bad as they were in Sodom, and yet we are God's covenant people. How did we ever get this low, this bad, and this degraded? And so it's a shock technique to try to awaken people to what is happening spiritually and socially as a consequence to the sexual deviancy of the, of the nation because of their apostasy. Verse 1, And it came to pass in those days... Now. That connects it to what happens before. Now, because of we, we've gone through the episode with Micah and his own personal priest and how that priest was wooed away by the tribe of Dan and went north and set up an alternate uh, worship site up in the north of Israel, that that individual, that Le- Levitical priest, was Jonathan, the son of Gershom. He's a grandson of, of Moses, therefore. 
And so that places the events of 17 and 18 within a generation of the Joshua conquest and the Joshua generation. So the, the, the victorious Jews who are spiritually together under Joshua and have victory over the Canaanites, that their society begins to fragment and apostatize within one generation of Joshua. Now, the events here take place at approximately that same time, but a, but a little later. We're going to notice that when, at the end of this, when the, the uh, uh, Levite puts out a call to arms to the other tribes of Israel that, to pull them together to deal with this problem in Benjamin, and they go to war against one of their own, one of their own tribes, that uh, all the tribes come together from Beersheba in the south to Dan in the north and uh, across the Jordan, the Gilead, the area of Gilead, the Gileadites. And we noted in our study of Jephthah that Gilead was often viewed on the Transjordan as not quite full. Um, they were viewed as second-class citizens in Israel. So this, again, shows that this event takes place very early in the period of the Judges. And, of course, we can't help but make the observation that if this occurred early in the period of the Judges, and the period of the Judges is a time of steady decline, apostasy, and deterioration, that it must have been an incredibly horrible time in which to live where there was tremendous uh, social uh, disorder and marital collapse and sexual perversion in the nation. It is a horrible, uh, degrading picture of the nation Israel at this time. So we're told it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel. Again, a reminder that they've rejected God as the authority in Israel. When God is no longer the authority in our lives, then something replaces God. And we become our own authority and slip into relativism. That there was a certain Levite, he's not named, he's anonymous, staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. He took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, and that was a normal procedure. It's not a wife, but a concubine does not have the status of a prostitute either. She has legal rights uh, under, and is even protected under the Mosaic law, she is, uh, but she does not have the full status of a wife. He took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, another thing we ought to note here is the emphasis on a Levite. Remember, one of the key figures in the previous chapter or the previous event was a Levite. And here we have another Levite in, in this chapter. And the reason these focus on, on Levites is because of all the tribes, Levites were not given a possession in the land. Forty-two cities were set aside for Levitical habitation, but they were basically designed to be travelers in the land who would teach doctrine to the people. And they had as their home base a home in one of these 42 cities, but they were not localized. They weren't in one particular area. So the emphasis on an anonymous Levite brings again to mind the fact that this could be anybody. He's traveling throughout the land, so he is a picture of general attitudes within the land as a whole. So he takes for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, and that ought to ring a couple of bells because the Levite who came to be the priest for Micah also came from Bethlehem. So again, there's a, another emphasis on Bethlehem, and it's not a very positive picture. He took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, but his concubine played the harlot against him. Now, that's not exactly the, the, the correct translation. It is from the Hebrew verb zanah. 
And if you, it, the, there are two Hebrew words, um, they are homophones. Zana. Z-A-N-A-H. Now, there's a lot of debate over the meaning of this. The primary word that is most often used, zana, does mean to act like a prostitute, to uh, commit immorality, to, to um, commit fornication, and to be sexually unfaithful. There is another, ver- uh, another word that looks very similar. Notice this last letter here. This is the Hebrew letter uh, hey. And notice there's a gap right here. That's the only difference between the letter hey and the letter hate. And one is a soft H, the other is a rough H. And the word zanach with the hate is a word that refers to anger. And some think that this was some sort of a scribe miscopied. And what this really pictures is just a domestic uh, a, a domestic um, uh, squabble here, and that she is um, uh, just uh, uh, angry, or that she has rejected him. She detests him. That's what zanach means. It means to reject or detest. But recent Hebrew scholarship is reflected in the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon that is that just came out in 1998. Says that there is a second root that is a homoph a homophone or homonym of zana looks the same, but it has another meaning. And that is, uh, means that to be angry or to quarrel. And that seems to fit the context here best because it doesn't seem like there is uh, any level of infidelity. There doesn't seem to be another person involved. It seems to be that, that this chapter just begins with an everyday domestic quarrel that's not too different from any quarrel we might have in our own marriages and our own families. And uh, she gets mad at him and angry at him, and she goes back home to live with Papa. And so it just starts off with a domestic squabble uh, in this family, and it's going to erupt into a major a major disruption in the entire nation. So it should be translated, but his concubine became angry with him and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for four whole months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her. And there we have the Hebrew idiom, to speak to her heart. And it's commonly interpreted from the idea of to speak tenderly to her or lovingly to her, but uh, it probably has, is an idiom for uh, carrying the idea of to persuade her, to uh, persuade her to come home. So he goes down and takes a, a dozen roses with him and a box of chocolates, as it were, and their culture, though, that re- that's reflected by the fact that he took a couple of donkeys with her. Now, that doesn't have the same import, does it, ladies? See, you have to interpret the Bible in the time in which it was written. So, he arose and went after her to speak kindly to her, to woo her back. And he brought his servant and a couple of donkeys with him. Now, some of you say a servant works. That works for you. You'd be glad if you had an argument with your husband and he decided to hire a servant for you. But uh, he brings a servant and a couple of donkeys with him, so she'll have something to ride back. He's showing some concern for her. But notice, after this point... This woman just moves into the background. We have to be sensitive. She becomes a non-entity. Talk about a wallflower. 
She makes one active decision in this whole event, and that's to leave her husband and go home to daddy. But after that, she's a non-player. She's totally passive. Everybody else is going to make decisions. And she becomes, um, uh, she's treated as a non-entity. And this is emphasized by the way the writer just ignore, almost overtly ignores her in the remainder of the text. And he's making an emphasis there, is that, that there's such a degradation and such a, uh, an antagonism between the sexes. The men have become so arrogant that the women have, are, are just, they're just simple backdrops to, to the main action, and they're really irrelevant to, to, to male arrogance and male honor. And that's what happens in human viewpoint patriarchy. When there is no doctrine, don't confuse human viewpoint patriarchy with divine viewpoint patriarchy. Then her husband arose, and then, um, then his father-in-law, verse 4, now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, uh, wait a minute, I skipped a section, the second part of verse 3, so she brought him into her father's house. When the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. Now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him, and he stayed with him for three days. Now I want you, at this point, we ought to start noticing the emphasis on time. He stays for three days, so they ate and they drank and they lodged there. Then it came to pass, there's another temporal marker, on the fourth day. So he's already been there three days. They arose early in the morning. Once again, the writer wants us to pay attention to the time. See, everything is based on timing. And it's because of the bad timing that occurs that everything else occurs in this whole section. And it came to pass on the fourth day that they arose early in the morning, and he stood to depart. But the young woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh your heart with a morsel of bread. Stay for breakfast, and afterward go your way. So he's, he's being very hospitable. He is, uh, he is a picture of hospitality. And one of the things that this goes back to is the second law, the second law in the Mosaic Law, when Jesus summarized the law, he summarized it in two commandments. First, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. This is part of the Mosaic Law, that in the land of Israel, every Jew is part of the, they're under a suzerain vassal treaty with God. We've covered that many times in terms of the covenant. In the ancient world, there was this covenant form where the Lord is the suzerain and the people are viewed as a vassal. In the ancient world, you would have a great king who would have client nations. Those are the vassals. And client nations were, were given certain uh, mandates as to how they were to behave toward one another. And so, as part of the Mosaic Law, God is saying, everyone in Israel is my vassal. You are to treat one another, whether you know one another or not. You are to treat one another in a certain way because you are all my vassals. The same thing becomes applicable in the church. When we are to love one another as Christ loved the church, whether we know some other believer or not, we are to love them as Christ loved them because they are a member, another member of the royal family of God, and that's impersonal love. And that involves hospitality. Hebrews chapter 13 emphasizes the importance of hospitality. One of the requirements for for pastors is that they are to be hospitable. It is a function of the spiritual life is to show hospitality to one another. It is part of the idea of compassion and caring for one another. And so the writer is drawing out this, painting this, this detailed picture of the hospitality of the father-in-law, that he is gracious. He's kind of, oh, stay here. He, he's, he's magnanimous towards his son-in-law. So verse 6, they 
sat down and they ate and they drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Please be willing to spend the night and let your heart be merry. So they've already been there three days. Now on the fourth day, he says, Stay again and let your heart be merry. Enjoy yourself. Let's, have, let's keep the party going. We've been having a good time. Let's just keep on having a good time. Verse 7, Then the man arose to go, but the father-in-law urged him so that he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose to go early in the morning. And uh, notice again the, the emphasis on time, that he spent another night there, and then it's the fifth day, and then he arose to go early in the morning. And the girl's father said, Please sustain yourself and wait until afternoon. So again, wait and afternoon are time elements. So pay attention to the time here. It's drawing out. So both of them ate, being very hospitable and and gracious, and they're having a good time. In verse 9, when the man arose to go along with his concubine and servant, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has drawn to a close. Once again, it's dusk, time element. Lo, the day is coming to an end. He repeats it. He says, Please, spend the night. Lo, the day is coming to an end. Spend the night. Hear that your heart may be merry. Then tomorrow you may arise early for your journey so that you may go home. Again and again and again, the writer keeps putting these time things in there. It's there for a reason. Pay attention to this. Time is going by. But the man was not willing to spend the night, so he arose and departed and came to a place opposite Jebus. Now, he's leaving near evening. So what does that tell you? He's not going to be able to get very far. If he had waited until morning, nothing in this whole chapter would have taken place. He would have gotten much further down the road. He could have gotten all the way home. But because he's impatient, because he's been dawdling, now all of a sudden, no, I just can't wait anymore. He finally decides to leave, and he heads out. Now, verse 10 says, uh, this whole section has portrayed normal oriental hospitality. Now, because it's so normal, we tend to just read past it. But the fact that it is normal, the writer is emphasizing because it's really abnormal in this setting. Because it's the usual state of affairs, he wants us to pay attention to it because now it has become unusual in Israel for this to be taking place. And it's going to be contrasted with the events that take place uh, as he comes to Gibeah. So they depart, and they came opposite Jebus. Now, Jebus is the ancient name for Jerusalem. It was inhabited by another group of, of uh, uh, the, the Canaanites, another uh, group of pagans, the Jebusites. And it wasn't until much later under David that the Jebusites were defeated, and the city of Jebus became the city of David, and Jerusalem came under uh, Jewish control. And they come to Jebus, and as they come to Jebus, some things are going to be... Uh, going to be noted. He says, there with him, uh, he had a pair of saddle donkeys, and his concubine also was with him. Just kind of an afterthought. See, the woman here is just viewed as an afterthought. The writer is making, taking pains to emphasize this. So, um, a couple of things about her that we ought to, ought to pay attention to. One is that, that uh, the only time that, that she seems really positive towards this guy is when he comes to see her and she, she welcomes him, but then she disappears into the background. All of the, all of the uh, dialogue is between her, uh, her husband and uh, her father-in-law. She's out of the picture. She, she is ignored. Uh, the only time she's really an active participant is when she leaves her husband and welcomes him at her father's house. So in light of this, we see that the narrator is portraying her 
in a negative light, unlike Oxa, the wife of Othniel, back in chapter 1, 14 and 15, who does get involved, who, who goes to her father, asks for additional uh, blessings uh, of land where there is water and springs for their land. And uh, this woman just is completely passive and has, uh, is completely ignored and just takes up a, a background role. Now they come to Jebus, verse 11. When they were near Jebus, the day was almost gone, and the servant said to his master, Please come and let us turn aside into this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. Now, the Levite is going to say something that's real important here. This, everything turns on this. His master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who are not of the sons of Israel, but we will go on as far as Gibeah. See, what he's saying is, look, that's, that city is dominated by a bunch of pagans, and we can't be safe there. And here's the irony. He's going to press on and move, go to a town of, controlled by Israelites, Gibeah of Benjamin, where he is not safe and where she is going to lose her life. And the picture is that the irony is that Israel no longer is a place safe for even Jews to live. So he says to his servant, verse 13, Come and let us approach one of these places, and we will spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. So they passed along and went their way, and the sun set on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there in order to enter and lodge in Gibeah. When they entered, they sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Then, behold, an old man was coming out of the field from his work at evening. Now the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was staying in Gibeah, but the men of the place were Benjamites. Just a note here. The writer once, twice now, he's mentioned Benjamin. There are three times he has mentioned Gibeah. And he may, then he makes the point that this other man, this old man, is staying. He's sojourning in Gibeah. He's not a local. He's not a Benjamite. He really wants to make the point. This guy's not a Benjamite. Pay attention. Follow the ball. Benjamin's the, where the, the place of trouble is. And it's the Benjamites. And verse 17, he lifted up his eyes. That is, the old man comes back into town after working out in the fields during the day. And he sees the, the Levite and the servant and his concubine in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where you, did you come from? And the Levite said to him, verse 18, we're passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim. Now, it's not that far, folks. He's probably got less than 20 miles to go, but because he started late, he's stuck in Gibeah. He said, For I am from there, and I went to Bethlehem in Judah, but I am now going to my house, and no man will take me into his house. Notice, there's nobody here hospitable. My father-in-law, I've just come from this great... My father-in-law has been whining and dining me for five days, and I come here, and nobody even says hi. I mean, they're, they're clannish, they ignore me, and the writer wants us to be aware of the fact that there's something, uh, there's something very troublesome about this. And one thing that we can, we can note is that it is, uh, th- this old man is the only one who recognizes his vassal responsibility to love his neighbor and is going to be hospitable and everyone else is too concerned with what's going on in their own lives and their own affairs to be hospitable and open up their home and to be kind to this stranger. So, the old man says, invites them to his house, um, And he says uh, in verse 
19, yet there is both straw and fodder for our dog. You also bread and wine for me, your maidservant, and the young man who is with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace to you. Shalom lacha. Only let me take care of all your needs. However, do not spend the night in the open square. There's a warning there. So he took him into the house and gave the donkeys fodder. They washed their feet. He's taking care of them as a host. He's washing the feet of his visitors. And they ate and they drank. So the, the, um, the city itself is a walled city. And so they think that they should be safe from outsiders. They should be protected from any, any violence, any, uh, any gangs, any wandering uh, robbers on the roads or brigands like those Jephthah was associated with. But, as a, but he, he realizes, and the old man realizes, that the problem is not outside. The problem is inside. And we're going to have to stop here because we're out of town. I mean, out of time. We're out of time, and we're going to have to pay attention to just what happens as a result of this uh, when we come back next week and we see this incredible um, rape that occurs and the impact that it has on the nation. But everything that, that we see here is the result of the nation forgetting their responsibilities as vassals to God, rejecting doctrine, rejecting the law, and so it has its impact in the way it tears apart the fabric of society, tears apart marriages, it promotes an environment where the sodomy increases, where there is sexual perversion that is taken as being normal, where people are uncaring and uncompassionate, and all, and the only thing they're concerned about is doing whatever pleases themselves. And so we see how arrogance and selfishness rise to the top in a pagan society. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for the time we've had to study this. As, as horrible and as, as vicious as this situation is, it, it does give us tremendous insight into just how and why things have become so horrible in our own culture, in our own society, because we too, as a society, as a culture, have turned our back on doctrine and on establishment principles. And the only solution, therefore, is not to fix the symptoms, but is for there to is a turning of the nation as a whole back to establishment principles and to Bible doctrine. There is no solution but the divine solution, and it begins at the cross. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here this morning uncertain of their salvation and unsure of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All that you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every sin in history, no matter how horrible, vicious, or degrading it might be. It's paid for by Christ on the cross, and therefore the only issue now is not what sin have you committed. The issue is, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior? If the answer to that is in the affirmative, then you have eternal life which can never be taken away. Now, Father, we thank you for this time. We pray that you would help us to assimilate these truths, that we may be uh, better at evaluating our own culture and our own society. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.